Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we talked about General Rosecrans' defeat at the ghastly Battle of Chickamauga near Chattanooga, Tennessee, in September 1863, to the rebel forces in North Georgia under General Braxton Bragg. Rosecrans fell back upon the city of Chattanooga, which was in turn held under siege by Confederate forces encircling the city in the heights and mountains to the south and east. As they hunkered down, the entrenched Federals marked the locations of the rebel camps surrounding them by the glow of their campfires by night and the plumes of smoke by day. And as September turned to October 1863, the Union Army faced a bleak situation. General Sherman recalled the situation succinctly in his memoir. Quote, Bragg had completely driven Rosecrans' army into Chattanooga. The latter was in actual danger of starvation, and the railroad to his rear seemed inadequate to his supply. The first intimation which I got of this disaster was on the 22nd of September, by an order from General Grant to dispatch one of my divisions immediately into Vicksburg to go toward Chattanooga." End quote. As Sherman indicated, the Army of the Cumberland's lifeline at Chattanooga was the railroad connection to Nashville. Now, pinned down by rebel forces, that lifeline proved at once to be both vitally important and woefully inadequate. Something would have to change, or the Federal Army faced ruin in the Tennessee Valley. Initially, as the Army of the Cumberland first occupied the city earlier in September, the real fear in Washington was that Bragg may resume the offensive and sweep around behind Rosecrans' flank through North Alabama into Middle Tennessee, cutting his army off from its supply base at Nashville and thus compelling its surrender. Sherman's task, therefore, when he was first sent east, was to guard Rosecrans' flank in North Alabama against any such rebel maneuvers. Halleck's instructions to Sherman were as follows, quote, it is quite possible that Bragg and Johnston will move through northern Alabama to the Tennessee River to turn General Rosecrans right and cut off his communications. All of General Grant's available forces should be sent to Memphis, thence to Corinth and Tuscumbia, to cooperate with Rosecrans should the rebels attempt that movement." End quote. Curiously, this message, dated the 13th of September, was sent from Cairo to Memphis aboard the steamboat Minnehaha, but for some reason unspecified in the official records, it was never actually delivered. The message was not received in Memphis until September 22nd. Between the 13th, when Halleck sent the message, and the 22nd, when it was received in Memphis, the Battle of Chickamauga took place, and suddenly the risk was not merely that Bragg may compel the surrender of the Army of the Cumberland, but that he might starve them out of Chattanooga in so doing. It was also at this time, on September 17th, the day before the Battle of Chickamauga, that Sherman penned his infamous letter to Halleck, outlining his opinion of the rebellion and how Southern society ought to be dealt with, which I read in the supplement to episode 18. If you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to check it out first. It's not necessary to follow the events of this episode, though but it does provide an illuminating glimpse into Sherman's mindset that will be important for us to keep in mind as we encounter his actions and policies from here on out. Upon the receipt of Halleck's message on the 22nd of September, General Osterhaus's division of Sherman's corps immediately left Vicksburg bound for Memphis as the departure point for their eastward march into the Tennessee Valley. The next day, Sherman met with General Grant at Vicksburg, and the alarming nature of the growing crisis at Chattanooga was becoming ever more apparent. 
Originally, Washington requested only one division to be sent east, but owing to the disastrous developments over the nine days since the orders had been given, Grant decided to dispatch two more of Sherman's divisions to aid General Rosecrans, which, combined with Osterhaus's division, made three out of four of the divisions under Sherman's command sent to the aid of federal forces in Chattanooga. After meeting with General Grant, Sherman returned to his camp headquarters on the Big Black River, just south of Vicksburg, and began the mobilization of his forces. Quote, the last of my corps designed for this expedition started from camp on the 27th, reached Vicksburg on the 28th, and were embarked on boats provided for them. End quote. And critically, for the communities of the Shoals. Sherman's orders from Halleck, as Sherman recalled, specified the following. Quote, General Halleck's dispatches dwelt upon the fact that Rosecrans' routes of supply were overtaxed, and that we should move from Memphis eastward, repairing railroads as we progressed as far as Athens, Alabama, whence I was to report to General Rosecrans at Chattanooga by letter. End quote. This stipulation, in effect, sealed the course Sherman's forces had to take to reach Chattanooga, by riverboat from Vicksburg to Memphis, from Memphis by rail to the Tennessee River at Eastport, then by road on the north bank of the river to Athens, and finally by rail again to Chattanooga via Huntsville. This was essentially the only practicable route, because, as General Hurlbut explained to Washington from Memphis on September 21st, quote, The water in the Ohio and Tennessee rivers is so low that I think they must march from Corinth. I have ordered one million rations and plenty of spare wagons to be transported to Corinth, ready as they come up. End quote. The going was slow, because water levels were critically low on the Mississippi River as well. Sherman wrote to General Grant from Helena, Arkansas, at 4 p.m. on Thursday, October 1st, 1863, quote, My boat arrived here an hour ago, and the pilots are gone to sound the bar. River very low, and we'll surely have to land our men and stock and pass round the bar, and even then it is doubtful if this boat can pass. River is lower than ever known before. End quote. While at Helena, he also described reading current events of the situation in Chattanooga in the newspapers, remarking sarcastically, quote, the newspapers announced that Rosecrans is already reinforced by Burnside and Sherman. They doubtless will hold us accountable for not passing by magic from Black River to Chattanooga. End quote. And he concludes his letter by saying, quote, I will push matters from Memphis with all possible energy, but no amount of energy will move a sandbar. Yours in haste, W.T. Sherman, Major General Commanding. End quote. He also mentioned, in passing, that his eldest daughter, Minnie, was feeling better, but that his eldest son, who shared his name, Willie, was very sick. His wife, Ellen, and their six children, four daughters and two sons, had joined him in Mississippi from their home in Ohio after the fall of Vicksburg. Now, as he was reassigned, the family all left Vicksburg together aboard the steamboat Atlantic. Shortly after their departure, Sherman remarked that Willie did not look well, and Willie admitted that he felt sick. Sherman recalled in his memoir what happened next. Quote, his mother put him to bed and consulted Dr. Roller of the 55th Illinois, who found symptoms of typhoid fever. The river was low. We made slow progress till above Helena. And, as we approached Memphis, Dr. Rolla told me that Willie's life was in danger, and he was extremely anxious to reach Memphis for certain medicines and for consultation. We arrived at Memphis on the 2nd of October, carried Willie up to the Gayoso Hotel, and got the most experienced physician there, who acted with Dr. Roller. But he sank rapidly and died the evening of the 3rd of October. The blow was a terrible one to us all, 
so sudden and so unexpected that I could not help reproaching myself for having consented to his visit in that sickly region in the summertime. Of all my children, he seemed the most precious. Born in San Francisco, I had watched with intense interest his development, and he seemed, more than any of the children, to take an interest in my special profession. Mrs. Sherman, Minnie, Lizzie, and Tom were with him at the time, and we all, helpless and overwhelmed, saw him die. Being in the very midst of an important military enterprise, I had hardly time to pause and think of my personal loss. End quote. Willie was nine years old. The day after Willie's death, Sherman wrote to the General-in-Chief, Halleck, at Washington, quote, My eldest boy, Willie, my California boy, nine years old, died here yesterday, a fever and dysentery contracted at Vicksburg. His loss to me is more than words can express, but I would not let it divert my mind from the duty I owe my country. End quote. The same day, in a touching letter to his friend, Captain C.C. Smith, Sherman expressed his feelings more candidly. He blames himself for allowing his family to join him in a sickly climate. He thanks the regiment for their kindness. He describes how Willie imagined himself to be a soldier in the army, and the very touching way he was honored in death. I will quote this letter rather extensively, as it appeared in Sherman's memoir. Quote, My dear friend, I cannot sleep tonight till I record an expression of the deep feelings of my heart to you, and to the officers and soldiers of the battalion for their kind behavior to my poor child. Consistent with a sense of duty to my profession and office, I could not leave my post, and sent for the family to come to me in that fatal climate, and in that sickly period of the year, and to behold the result. The child that bore my name, and in whose future I reposed with more confidence than I did in my own plan of life, now floats a mere corpse, seeking a grave in a distant land, with a weeping mother, brother, and sisters clustered about him. For myself, I ask no sympathy. On, on I must go to meet a soldier's fate, or live to see our country rise superior to all factions, till its flag is adored and respected by ourselves, and by all the powers of the earth. But Willie was, or thought he was, a sergeant in the 13th. I have seen his eye brighten, his heart beat, as he beheld the battalion under arms, and asked me if they were not real soldiers. Child as he was, he had the enthusiasm, the pure love of truth, honor, and love of country, which should animate all soldiers. God only knows why he should die thus young. He is dead, but will not be forgotten till those who knew him in life have followed him to that same mysterious end. Please convey to the battalion my heartfelt thanks, and assure each and all that if in after years they call on me or mine, and mention that they were of the 13th regulars when Willie was a sergeant, that they will have a key to the affections of my family, and that they will open all it has, that we will share with them our last blanket, our last crust. Your friend, W.T. Sherman, Major General. End quote. It was in the shadow of this unfathomable personal tragedy, which he did not even feel he had the time to mourn, that Sherman's wife and children left Memphis with Willie's body, bound for their home in Ohio. And Sherman proceeded east to the banks of the Tennessee River at the Shoals. He explained he would push all his forces forward to Corinth and the Tennessee River as fast as the railroad would carry them. The most advanced of his forces, under Osterhaus, by this time had already begun gathering at Corinth since October 1st. In the meantime, the rebel cavalry at the Federal Front carried out the awaited assault on Rosecrans' constricted line of supply in Middle Tennessee. 
The raid was led by Generals Joseph Wheeler and Philip Roddy, both of whom were residents of Lawrence County, Alabama. Roddy was a citizen of Moulton, and Wheeler's home, Pond Spring, still stands about three miles east of Cortland, Alabama. The situation for rebels in the heights surrounding Chattanooga at this time was not much better than that of the Federals. Following what was touted as a God-given complete victory for the Confederacy at Chickamauga, Bragg had lost the confidence of his top generals for failing to push the advantage to drive Burnside out of Knoxville or to intensify the attack on Rosecrans. General Longstreet wrote to Richmond less than a week after Chickamauga on September 26th, imploring that Robert E. Lee be sent to Tennessee from Virginia because of Bragg's failure. To quote Longstreet, quote, Our chief has done but one thing that he ought to have done since I joined this army. That was to order the attack upon the 20th. All other things that he has done he ought not to have done. I am convinced that nothing but the hand of God can save us or help us as long as we have our present commander. End quote. Bragg described the proposition of attacking the Federals entrenched in Chattanooga as quote, suicidal, end quote, and the rebel forces stayed put, eating up their own thin supplies, many of the men poorly clothed and shod. Instead of a direct maneuver, Bragg ordered a raid on Rosecrans' lines of supply and communication back to Nashville. This was the impetus for Wheeler's raid. Wheeler's orders were to cross the Tennessee and to, quote, press the enemy, intercept and break up all his lines of communication and retreat, end quote. I don't have time to go into detail with Wheeler's raid. Suffice to say, things did not go according to plan for the rebels. Things got off to a rocky start right away. Wheeler crossed the Tennessee River at a point called Cotton Port, just upstream of where the Hiawassee River meets the Tennessee near Decatur, Tennessee. A Federal Cavalry Division under Brigadier General George Crook was already in the neighborhood watching for any rebel advances across the river, and quickly pursued Wheeler up over the Cumberland Mountains and into the Sequatchie Valley to the west. A captured dispatch from Wheeler himself explains how, upon crossing the Tennessee River, he expected to rendezvous with General Roddy at Jasper, Tennessee, in the Sequatchie Valley. However, once within ten miles of Jasper, he learned Roddy was not yet across the river at all. Reconnaissance then reached him that Roddy crossed the Tennessee River at Belfont, Alabama, and was moving in the direction of Murfreesboro. Wheeler moved in that direction, but still couldn't find Roddy's command. By this point, a numerically superior force of Federal cavalry, mounted and dismounted infantry, were on Wheeler's heels. The rebels managed some successes, despite being hard-pressed. They burned a Union supply train. They managed to briefly capture the town of McMinnville, Tennessee, with a trove of goods and stores. They continued burning bridges and supply trains as far north as Murfreesboro, all the while hotly pursued by two divisions of Federal cavalry and a regiment of mounted infantry. But finally, on October 7th, Federal cavalry caught up to a Confederate division under command of General Davidson and camped on Duck River away from the rest of the main body of rebel troops and attacked, driving them into a rout. They caught up to Wheeler's main body near Farmington, Tennessee, and resisted the Federal assault. Rebel accounts differ as to how Wheeler's ensuing retreat played out. Wheeler himself said that they, quote, withdrew without being followed and crossed the Tennessee River without difficulty, end quote. But another rebel cavalry commander, Stephen D. Lee, riding from North Alabama after being in contact with Wheeler, described the retreat differently. Quote, the general was pursued and harassed by the main body of the enemy's cavalry till he crossed the Tennessee River, with the loss of about 400 killed, wounded, and prisoners. End quote. 
Rati, when he encountered several stragglers and wounded men from Wheeler's command, reported, quote, All agreed in the statement that Wheeler had been severely repulsed at Farmington. End quote. After they halted at Rogersville, Alabama, on October 14th, Union Brigadier General Robert Mitchell described Wheeler's retreat. Quote, During the last day's march, Wheeler's retreat was a rout, and his command were running all day for the river, every man for himself, and hats, caps, coats, guns, and broken-down horses were strewn along the whole route. End quote. And Colonel Hodge, of Wheeler's own command, did not mince words when he described the Federal assault on his forces at Farmington. Quote, My gallant brigade was cut to pieces and slaughtered. I had informed the officers and men that the sacrifice of their lives was necessary, and they manfully made the sacrifice. Though much of my brigade with its cannon reached and crossed the Tennessee River at Muscle Shoals on the 9th of October, one-third of my brigade had been destroyed. I have lost many of my best, gallant, and efficient officers. End quote. Roddy never actually met up with Wheeler in Middle Tennessee at all. While Colonel Hodge's men were being shredded at Farmington, Roddy finally crossed the Tennessee River at Larkin's Landing near Scottsboro, Alabama. His raid was not much more successful. They did, notably, succeed in reaching the railroad tunnel at Cohen, Tennessee, and obstructing it by, quote, filling the tunnel through the shafts with every available stick and stone, end quote. The tunnel still stands and is in use today. The shafts he mentions are ventilation ducts to allow for the escape of smoke from the steam locomotives that originally traversed the tunnel. By the way, strangely to me, the next day, Major General Hooker at Stevenson, Alabama, blamed a federal officer in command at the tunnel for filling it with earth and stones as an act of cowardice, saying he had placed the officer under arrest as a result. This was clearly some kind of misunderstanding, because Roddy himself took responsibility for it. Federal forces continued to occupy the northern bank of the Tennessee River, from Huntsville to Rogersville, through the second week of October, following their pursuit of Wheeler. As the Federals moved out of Rogersville, Roddy quietly entered the town. This Confederate raid is a blistering example of how slowly communications traveled in the 1860s, and the nightmarish logistical challenge it posed for commanders. Coordinating disparate commands over an entire region with hundreds of miles between them resulted in delays that seem inconceivable to us today. Cavalry, especially, were able to far outpace the ability of generals at distant headquarters to adequately control and coordinate their movements. Bragg's headquarters told Wheeler on September 28th that Roddy was ordered to meet him at Jasper, Tennessee. Yet Roddy did not even cross the river for nine more days, and by that time Wheeler was being chased out of Middle Tennessee. And between those dates, on October 2nd, Stephen D. Lee was ordered out of Mississippi to cross the Tennessee River at Muscle Shoals and to join Roddy to his own command to launch his own raid on Rosecrans, unbeknownst least of all to Roddy. Lee informed Roddy he intended to march for Tuscumbia on October 7th, the day Roddy crossed north of the Tennessee, and the day Wheeler was whipped at Farmington. Lee arrived in Tuscumbia the same day Wheeler recrossed the Tennessee at Cortland. These misfires and stunted efforts to coordinate only wasted rebel time, efforts, and manpower, as the Federals clung to Chattanooga, and Sherman, with four divisions, grew ever closer to the rescue. As they awaited instructions, Lee and Wheeler's cavalry remained idle in North Alabama, spread out between Tuscumbia and Cortland. Lee was growing anxious about the advance of Sherman's forces and desired to move back into Mississippi. Indeed, on October 17th, 
Sherman gave orders for General Blair to take command of the 1st and 2nd Divisions, with two regiments of cavalry, and to cross the Bear Creek, approaching Tuscumbia, and secure the railroad for the passage of the army. That same day, October 17th, Wheeler sent Stephen D. Lee a message, saying he hoped Bragg would soon answer a dispatch sent, quote, on the night I was with you at Colonel Saunders, end quote. This rather forgettable statement holds enormous personal significance for me. I can't be 100% certain, but it's very possible that Wheeler could be referring to the large antebellum home known as Saunders Hall, or the Good Hall House, which stands in Lawrence County, Alabama, near the community of Town Creek between Cortland and Tuscumbia. My grandmother has always referred to this house as the Big House. She grew up in the fields around this house, where my family worked as sharecropping field hands in the 1950s. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss Sherman's advance into North Alabama and the heavy impact upon life in the shoals through all levels of society. Please stay with us. October 16th, 1863, President Lincoln relieved Rosecrans of command of the Army of the Cumberland. In his stead was placed George H. Thomas, who had won widespread acclaim for his bravery at Chickamauga. The departments of the Cumberland, Ohio, and Tennessee were combined into the division of the Mississippi, with General Grant in command of them all. Grant was immediately ordered to personally command the tenuous situation at Chattanooga. His instructions from Halleck stated, quote, One of the first objects requiring your attention is the supply of your armies. Another is the security of the passes in Georgia and to shut out the enemy from Tennessee and Kentucky, end quote. Rosecrans does not seem to have been made aware of the change until three days later. While Rosecrans penned a farewell address to the troops, Grant wrote to General Thomas, Rosecrans' replacement, the following brief message, quote, Hold Chattanooga at all hazards. I will be there as soon as possible. Please inform me how long your present supplies will last and the prospect for keeping them up, End quote. General Thomas replied, 204,462 rations in storehouses, 90,000 to arrive tomorrow, and all the trains were loaded which had arrived at Bridgeport up to the 16th, probably 300 wagons. I will hold the town till we starve. End quote. This was certainly not hyperbole. The situation was so desperate that horses were already dying for want of forage, Quartermaster Miggs reported on October 7th. The situation was not much better at Corinth. Major General Blair reported the same day to Sherman, quote, Forage is very short here, and we are losing many valuable horses for want of hay, end quote. Supplying the army, as usual, was a virtually insurmountable logistical challenge. Sherman already held the Memphis and Charleston in poor regard, as he explained to Grant. Quote, I don't like this railroad. It lies parallel to an enemy's country, and they can break it when they please. My own opinion is that we will have to rely on the Tennessee River, or reopen the road from Corinth to Columbus, for it is certain this one from Memphis will be cut the moment I get east of Bear Creek. End quote. After correctly predicting that Grant would be ordered to assume command of all the federal forces in the West, he explained his strategy for the Corps. Quote, Mine is too small to attempt to divide up to cover a long line of railway, and I would prefer to move about and learn to live on the corn and meal of the country. To depend on a road so precarious as this would tie us down to localities that can have no material influence on events. End quote. 
At the same time, Sherman reported that the Tennessee River was rising, and he requested steamboat ferries to be sent up from St. Louis to aid in crossing the four divisions in his corps. He reasoned that he couldn't establish communication with Nashville until he was north of the river. Two days after Thomas pledged to starve before giving up Chattanooga, on October 21st, the advanced Federal force skirmished with rebel cavalry at Barton Station and, quote, whipped them handsomely, end quote. They fought again at dawn on the 26th and in and around a cemetery in Barton, Alabama, exchanging a heavy barrage of artillery fire. Another line of battle was drawn up at Cane Creek. Eventually, the rebels retreated back on Tuscumbia, where they made a stand on the morning of the 27th. There was skirmishing along the Little Bear Creek at the crossing of the Tuscumbia Road, where the steep terrain offered some defensive protection. But by 11 o'clock that morning, Sherman's 1st Division under General Osterhaus occupied Tuscumbia, and continued pouring into town throughout the afternoon. They were not there to stay. The Federals were immediately ordered back to Cherokee, and abandoned Tuscumbia the following morning, the 28th. As Osterhaus's division advanced to establish Sherman's foothold at the Shoals, in preparation for his crossing the river, local people immediately felt the impacts of their presence. Sherman's realization that the army couldn't rely upon the railroad to meet its needs placed the heaviest weight upon the community to make up the difference. General Osterhaus's division made its headquarters at the home of one man, Jacob Albright, who resided in a community called Dixon, located halfway between Marjoram and Cherokee in present-day Colbert County. Mr. Albright described the experience of having the Federal Army encamp on his property. Quote, General Sherman's command came into the country and commenced tearing down my fence. They shot my oxen and carried them off. They uncovered my cotton, which was covered with straw, and carried the cotton off. They burned the tanner's tools and bellows of my blacksmith shop. The command encamped on my place and all around my house. General Osterhaus had his headquarters in my house. There was some thirty or forty thousand soldiers, and they were generally engaged. The first day the officers would not allow them to take a thing, but the second day the officers told me that the men were obliged to forage, and they could not help the taking of my property. The general remained overnight. I heard no orders for the soldiers to take the property. I complained to the officers, and they said they could not help it. The day was cold and wet. They stripped away my barn of all the boards and planks to make bunks and used the cotton for bedding. I complained to General Osterhaus and other officers in reference to the property. The general told me that I would have to let them take their course, that the weather was unpleasant, and that they had to have beds to lie on and provisions to feed. End quote. In addition to the letter to Halleck we've already encountered, it's evident from the official records that Sherman had no hesitations relying upon local southern populations to make up the inevitable shortfalls in his supply chain. Distant were the days of General Buell the previous summer, only taking where it was unavoidable. As the following orders from Sherman's headquarters show, taking supplies from the local population was pivotal in the strategy to crush the rebellion's ability to wage war. This is dated October 26, 1863, at Iuka, Mississippi. Quote, when a district is infested by guerrillas or held by the enemy, horses, mules, wagons, corn, forage, etc. are all means of war, and can be freely taken, but must be accounted for as public property. If the people do not want their horses, corn, etc. taken, they must organize and repress all guerrilla or hostile bands in their neighborhood. End quote. Mr. Albright's property in Sherman's mind, was bound to either help the Federal Army or the rebels, and if they couldn't use it, they could at least destroy it to prevent it from aiding the rebellion. 
Shortly after these orders were given, it became apparent that the army could not practically cross the Tennessee River at Florence. Ironically, the water having been too low for boating throughout October, by the end of the month, the rains had swollen the river to such a degree that fording was no longer possible. Additionally, it was no longer strategically relevant to proceed further east than Eastport. Already by the 23rd, gunboats and a transport had been sent upriver as far as Eastport. Sherman explained on the 24th, quote, Two gunboats under Lieutenant Commander Phelps arrived at Eastport, and that officer is now with me, and I will proceed at once to pass a division over the Tennessee to move to Florence. The railroad is now in fine order from Memphis to Bear Creek, but the break in the road beyond is serious, and repairs proceed too slow. End quote. And writing to Hurlbut at Memphis, he also added, quote, Captain Feltz reports there are eight feet of water, enough for the Continental. There is no need of anything coming to me over the railroad. Please notify the quartermaster and commissary at St. Louis that the Tennessee is in good boating order up to Eastport, and that I will receive goods at that point, end quote. Sherman greatly esteemed the strategic value of the river, far beyond that of the railroad, as he explained on the 26th of October to Admiral Porter at Cairo. Quote, We are much obliged to the Tennessee, which has favored us most opportunely, for I am never easy with the railroad, which takes a whole army to guard, each foot of rail being essential to the whole, whereas they cannot stop the Tennessee, and each boat can make its own game. End quote. These communications show how repairing the railroad to Tuscumbia had become a liability, not an asset, to Sherman, and a task which was irrelevant to his main objective, vis-a-vis -vis crossing the Tennessee River to be able to communicate with Nashville. Now that the gunboats and transports were at Eastport, and with the rebel cavalry driven back comfortably beyond Tuscumbia, the Federals could ferry their divisions across the river. As late as October 27th, Sherman was still considering the possibility of taking boats to Florence. Quote, General Ewing's command is moving via Eastport, Waterloo, and Gravelly Spring to Florence. There are two gunboats now at Eastport, and more coming with transports, etc. I tried to go over the Colbert Shoals yesterday, but the boat Hastings, drawing fully four feet, could not pass. But I expect every hour boats of lighter draft, in which case I will get one or more to Florence, in which event I will have the three divisions now in front of Bear Creek move on to Scumbia, etc. Otherwise, I will move you by the left flank to Chickasaw and cross you at Waterloo, Florence, etc. End quote. The next day, Sherman summarized the situation to Halleck in Washington. Quote, I tried to get a boat over Colbert Shoals to enable Blair to cross over, but failed. Water good up to Eastport, but not above. I will push the whole of the 15th Army Corps at Eastport and occupy Florence at once. Railroad across Bear Creek is done, but unless I can get boats to Suscumbia so as to cross over, we gain nothing by repairing any more of it. Tennessee River is in fine stage up to Colbert Shoals. End quote. The definitive point of crossing at last, therefore, became Eastport and Chickasaw, and the Federal Army entered Lauderdale County at Waterloo. From Eastport. Sherman wrote to Grant on the 30th of October, 1863, quote, I have been working in foul weather, had one gunboat and a coal barge decked over, which, with the muddy, slippery banks, made very slow and awkward work, end quote. He also added, quote, I can only carry ten days' rations, and will draw liberally of meats and corn in the country. The country is full of cavalry and guerrillas. We have had numerous skirmishes, but thus far we have had the advantage. End quote. The same day, Brigadier General Hugh Ewing, commanding Sherman's 4th Division, reached Florence. It was the day before Ewing's 37th birthday. One witness to the Federal advance through Florence in the first week of November 1863 was Sally Foster, whom we met already. 
she was the daughter of the prominent planter and businessman George Washington Foster, who resided in the Courtview Mansion, now Rogers Hall, of the University of North Alabama. Sally's diary explains how her home, being of great local prominence, became a center of operations for the Federal Army. Quote, Ever since Thursday, the enemy have been here. On Thursday, they came marching up in large force, both cavalry and infantry. We had been expecting nearly all day, so Dr. Mitchell dismissed school, and we have not had any since school since. A great many officers stayed here, I mean in our house. When they first came in, the stragglers knocked down all the beehives and killed most of the chickens, so we had to catch the few they left and put them in the pantry. They camped on the male college hill, and in the college, and back of Miss Williams, and a great many places. A large army passed through today, and a great many yesterday. They have beautiful music. I was awakened this morning by them leaving, and also the beautiful music. They stayed in my room and the boys' room, so we had to come up in Brother Watts' room. End quote. When she writes about the male college, she undoubtedly is referring to what now corresponds to Wesleyan Hall on the campus of UNA. Here in November 1863, Sarah's observations show how Wesleyan was occupied by Sherman's Army of the Tennessee. The poor weather and breadth of its destruction aside, the Army of the Tennessee under Sherman was not long in passing through Lauderdale County. By the 6th of November, the advanced divisions of the army were already preparing to cross Elk River. Sherman wrote near Elkton, Tennessee, describing his movements to that point. Quote, I found elk 200 yards wide, four feet deep, and running very swift. I could have passed horses and men, but artillery and wagons would have bothered me. To wait for a fall would have been precarious, and to bridge would have delayed me, so I turned at Rogersville and came through by this route. But yesterday rain caught me down in the rugged valley of Elk, and I had to bridge Richland Creek. End quote. And reminiscent of Sally Foster's description of the pilfered chickens, Sherman amusingly remarked upon the foraging ability of his army. Quote, I find plenty of corn, cattle, hogs, etc. on this route, but I don't think there will be much left after my army passes. I never saw such greedy rascals after chickens and fresh meat. End quote. Striking a more grave tone, he concludes by saying, quote, I don't know, but it would be a good plan to march my army back and forth from Florence and Stevenson to make a belt of devastation between the enemy and our country. End quote. A testament to the devastation is found in the fact that, despite only being in Lauderdale County for just over a week, Sherman's name is listed far more than any predecessor up to that point in time as the commander responsible for the property taken in SCC claimants' petitions. Eleven out of seventy-two approved claimants mention Sherman as having taken property from them, as well as no fewer than eight of the barred and disallowed claimants. Samuel Hyde had a cart and horse taken by Sherman's command that he had lent to Mr. Hope Morrison, a mechanic, on his way to Mill, when he met General Sherman's forces one mile east of Florence on the Huntsville Road en route to Chattanooga. Sherman's command also took corn from Mr. Hyde's field. His sister-in-law recalled the scope of their loss. Quote, all was taken but about five or six bushels that I had gathered by the children after they were gone. End quote. The presence of Sherman's army was like a plague of locusts to the residents along the path of their march. Horses, mules, corn, and bacon especially were the most common items taken. All told, the SCC claimants from Lauderdale County held Sherman responsible for just over $6,000 of property confiscated, which, by one metric I found, equals $131,000 in 2021. Mind you, that's only the approved claimants, and that's also the amount they claimed, not the amount they actually received as compensation from Uncle Sam. 
The SEC never paid for tobacco or chickens, for example, and almost never paid the full amount they claimed in any event. Nevertheless, the presence of the Federal Army under General Sherman was not purely a setback for many residents of Lauderdale County. For example, one claimant, Mr. William Farmer, was advised to go north to Louisville, Kentucky, on the advice of Brigadier General Ewing. Mr. Farmer was a shoemaker who had gone blind by April 1863. Perhaps in encouraging him to go north, General Ewing wished to spare him from the fallout of the scorched earth retribution policy Sherman planned to rain down upon the communities of the Tennessee Valley. In any event, Mr. Farmer did go to Louisville and sold his home at a greatly reduced price. And then, of course, as we've already seen, the presence of the Federal Army was a boon to enslaved people wishing to escape bondage. I can point to some examples in the SCC documents that point to such instances. One man, Henry Patton, says he left with Sherman's forces and eventually served in uniform with the 10th Tennessee. Samuel Brooks claims to have served Sherman's command, though he apparently returned before the war's end to the plantation of the man who formerly enslaved him. His so-called mistress had previously offered him incentives to not escape bondage by following the Federal Army. Sally Foster, in her diary as well, notes a couple of instances. A warning here, her word choice is insensitive, and please know that while I repeat it here for your knowledge, I do not condone the language she uses. Quote, Anna, Sister Lou's girl that nursed Annie, went to the Yankees this morning. One of Pa's darkies named Monroe has gone. End quote. These examples show us how, brief though the transit of Sherman's army was through North Alabama, its presence was an utter upheaval to the community, whether as a source of confiscation and plunder, or as an opportunity to safely escape rebeldom, or even escape bondage and win freedom. Sherman's unabashed, heavy-handed approach to Southern society, which would be so articulately and virtuosically dealt upon the state of Georgia in the infamous march to the sea in one year's time, was practiced in earnest here in Lauderdale County in the fall of 1863. I will leave you with an anecdote from Sherman's memoir, which I find completely captivating and poignant. I will quote Sherman extensively here. It begins as Sherman was first crossing the Tennessee River at Waterloo. Quote, In person, I crossed on the 1st of November and rode forward to Florence, where I overtook Ewing's division. The other divisions followed rapidly. On the road to Florence, I was accompanied by my staff, some clerks, and mounted orderlies. Major Ezra Taylor was chief of artillery, and one of his sons was a clerk at headquarters. The latter seems to have dropped out of the column and gone to a farmhouse near the road. There was no organized force of the rebel army north of the Tennessee River, but the country was full of guerrillas. A party of these pounced down on the farm, caught young Taylor and another of the clerks, and after reaching Florence, Major Taylor heard of the capture of his son and learned that when last seen, he was stripped of his hat and coat, was tied to the tailboard of a wagon, and driven rapidly to the north of the road we had traveled. The Major appealed to me to do something for his rescue. I had no cavalry to send in pursuit, but knowing that there was always an understanding between these guerrillas and their friends who stayed at home, I sent for three or four of the principal men of Florence, among them a Mr. Foster, who had once been a senator in Congress, explained to them the capture of young Taylor and his comrade, and demanded their immediate restoration." They, of course, remonstrated, denied all knowledge of the acts of these guerrillas, and claimed to be peaceful citizens of Alabama residing at home. I insisted that these guerrillas were their own sons and neighbors, that they knew their haunts and could reach them if they wanted, and they could effect the restoration to us of these men, 
and I said, moreover, they must do it within twenty-four hours, or I would take them, strip them of their hats and coats, and tie them to the tailboards of our wagons till they were produced. They sent off messengers at once, and young Taylor and his comrade were brought back the next day. End quote. Less than a month after losing his beloved son, Willie, at the beginning of his eastward march, I can't help but think that the special mission to bring back Major Taylor's son touched Sherman in his heart of hearts. This is my speculation here, but though his own son may have been lost as a peripheral pawn in the War of the Rebellion, too late to save him as it was, perhaps he could still save Major Taylor's son and prevent the grief of a parent losing a child from spreading just this once. At any rate, this particular story of Sherman in Lauderdale County was significant enough in his memory that twelve years later, when writing his memoir, it still stood out as notable. On October 2, 1863, the day Sherman arrived in Memphis with his mortally ill son Willie, Thomas Seipert arrived in Nashville with a group of men from Wayne, Lawrence, and Hardin counties in Tennessee and Lauderdale County, Alabama, who were willing to risk their lives to join the Stars and Stripes to suppress the rebellion in their own neighborhoods. The first group to arrive became Company A of the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. A few days later, another group arrived that had gotten separated, which would become Company B. Among the latter, were my fifth great-grandfather, James Danley, and his sons, including my fourth great-grandfather, William. I will quote here from Thomas Seipert's memoir, dated in 1866, quote, Here I feel it to be a duty, as it certainly is a pleasure, to pay a special tribute of respect to the name of Danley. Mr. James Danley was nearly sixty years of age at the outbreak of the rebellion, he had six sons, the youngest of whom was but sixteen years of age. He gave them all to the National Army, and then joined it himself. The example of Mr. Danley and his sons is both a noble and extraordinary one. We wonder if these brave lads and their sire are to be placed in the catalogue of conquered rebels? Is it, it is pleasant to record that they all passed safely through the times, so trying to both the souls and bodies of men, and still live to aid in re-establishing their own state, the government they fought to sustain. End quote. My fourth and fifth great-grandfathers, William and James Stanley, assumed incredible risk to join the arms of the United States against the rebellion, loyal citizens willing to risk their lives to preserve the Union. We will encounter more stories from the Second Tennessee as we move forward. As Sherman moved through North Alabama, he brought General Grenville Dodge with him. Dodge will end up in Pulaski, Tennessee, just north of Lauderdale County, monitoring the rebels on the Union right, with frequent consequences for local people. The federal presence from now on until the end of the war will be essentially solidified, with Pulaski as the hub, and local people subsidizing, in corn, pork, and horses, the presence of the federal army in their communities who were subduing the rebellion. Join us next time as we bring in the new year, 1864, and meet the unprecedented burdens faced by everyday people in the shoals to put down the rebellion in their own midst, which will, sadly, only be a prelude for the unfathomable hardship to come. Thank you so much for joining me.